Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. And today, our guest is Mike Bonneville, the Vice President of Skyline Asset Management. Thanks for coming, Mike. No worries. Happy to be here. So as always, you know, our, our regular listeners would know we kind of just start with, you know, how did you get into commercial real estate and how did you end up at Skyline? So why don't you start with, you know, the day you graduated university? Sure. So uh, graduated a long, what feels like a long time ago from uh, Western and the Herb Dev program. Like a lot of people kind of in the industry and one of your previous guests, Dave Morrison. Mm-hmm. Episode number four, if you want to go back and, and read it. I'll put a link in it. the show notes. There yes. you go. <laughs> the well-followed Dave Morrison. So graduated from Western in 94, and I think got one of the two jobs that was available in 94 in the real estate industry at Jones Lang Wooden back then. So they were a small shop, much different than Jones Lang LaSalle, kind of in its current form of 1,300 plus employees. So back then, one office in Toronto, 12 employees. I think I was number 12 that got hired and was primarily a, a valuation and advisory shop. And the reason they actually needed to hire somebody while everybody else was, you know, firing and getting laid off. And actually, if you talked about commercial real estate, it was a, you know, everyone was like, well, why would you ever do that? Like everyone's losing money. And so uh, back then, Jones Lang had got hired by the bondholders for Cadillac Fairview, which had just been, or was going through receivership. So uh, Blackstone, JMB, and I think one other uh, U.S. investor owned a lot of the paper for Cadillac Fairview. And so they were trying to realize on their security back then. So Jones Lang needed manpower to go and underwrite all of Cadillac Fairview's assets. So at that point, I think it was primarily office and retail across the country, but uh, there was a bunch of young people in the office and we kind of covered coast to coast for about 18 months, underwrote all the assets. And and it's kind of, I think a good start, like compared to the the frothiness of where real estate is today which has been good for everybody. But I remember us sitting around the table underwriting downtown Toronto office assets like TD Center, Toronto Eaton Center for 75 bucks a foot, you know, and going to the bondholders and saying, you know, we think it's worth this. And, you know, they're going, well, how can it be worth that? Right. It's negative NERs, you're 25% vacant. You know, every deal you do, you lose money. They're losing money on. So trying to, uh, and I was the junior guy sitting in the back of the bus listening to all this, but listening to these senior guys debate on, you know, whether a class A office building downtown Toronto was worth 50 bucks a foot or 75 bucks a foot. We've, I don't know how many times we've said it on this podcast now, but you're hearing those stories and there's so many people in this industry going, what? Commercial real estates can have risk to it? No. <laughs> Everything just gets better and better every year. How is yeah. this? How could this be? Cadillac Fairview, like they, they never screw up. They're perfect, aren't they? Well, yeah. if you started your career in 1997, you would have just had a perfect run of good time, but you yeah. caught the... Uh, you know, an immediate dose of cold water in the industry to see the ugly side of it. I mean, it's funny too. I mean, the uh, valuations you're talking about, that's what the gross rent would be in those buildings today. It's uh, uh, unbelievable to think about. In 20 years is an expanse of time, but it's not that long. Oh yeah, it's, for it's sure. It's pretty crazy. When it's, and if you looked at, you know, vacancies across markets and stuff, but at that time, Toronto would have been 17, 18, 19, 20% vacant, let alone what the availability rate is. And then go to places like Calgary back then, you know, they were in the low 20s as well. So it's... And still know, are. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> Whatever is old is new again, yeah, right? right. So. Do you remember what cap rates you were using back then on that sort of valuation? Just just you, for, for... You couldn't for, cap... You couldn't do a cap rate. 
right? So everything was on a DCF basis. So it was all about, you know, modeling where you thought rent growth was going to be for office assets for sure, because you were, you're generally negative cash flow and that's without debt. Wow. And so, and, but, and when you're sitting at 20 plus percent vacancy and so is everybody else trying to model, well, you know, in 12 months, 18 months, you know, we'll lease up 10% of the space, right? Like it just wasn't feasible back then. For those that are just shaking their heads or crashing their heads, DCF is discounted cash flow. Maybe just explain that real brief, just, just for sure. Listeners. So DCF is, is basically taking a stream of stream of payments. So generally a 10 year, 10 year cash flow where you're modeling the NOI from a building generally through a stabilization point. But and you're making a whole bunch of assumptions all along the way, yeah, trying to your, project you know, what your 10 growth, years look and, like. You know, yeah. rent growth, occupancy, expense growth. And at the end of the end, end of that period of time, applying a, a cap rate, but a, to call it a terminal cap rate, and then PVing that back to today. So you're, you know, it's a stream. What's that stream of cash flows worth? And then that terminal value, because it's a perpetual asset. In today's, in today's dollars. Right. So what are you going to pay for it today? So And part of the reason you had to use that was because the first probably two years of your cash flow would have been $0, $0, and then slowly creeping up from there. Oh, yeah. So whereas, you know, today we just take our, of course, NOI, apply a cap rate and get a value of a million dollars per square foot. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. And that's at the end. And you were really in, you know, a time of unprecedented value, at least for most people sitting around the table back then, right? Because you'd gone through the heydays of the 80s when there was a ton of construction, office construction and retail Interest rates were coming way down. Right? Well, you were down at that point, but I remember we were, you know, we were looking at assets within that portfolio and Calex portfolio wasn't unique. It was, you know, Cambridge Shopping Centers, Markborough, all these guys were, had grown and built their portfolios through the same time period. But I remember looking at office assets in Toronto that had a uh, debt of 17% on it. You know, you you know, and you're looking at and you look at the cash flow. There's an interest rate of seventeen percent, not seventy percent <laughs> loan to value. Just yeah, in case you're like, what? Yeah. And so you're looking, and and that's it. You looked at these assets and said, even if it's full, right, and, and you're at a, you know, mid-teen or a low twenties rent, and you put seventeen percent interest, and you have to pay AM. No one, either you're, like, there wasn't. It wasn't a cash flow business at that point, right? It was a at least from from a young guy coming into the industry saying someone must have been betting on well it's worth more tomorrow than it is today so I'll put seventeen percent interest on it and you know someone maybe I'll, I'll it'll be worth more in five years. So are you right? thinking so, what the heck did I get myself into? <laughs> yeah. Or are you thinking this is awesome? I'm going to take advantage <laughs> of the situation. How's my boss going to pay me now? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, the good news is he didn't pay me very much. So, but also back then, like as I said, I think there was two jobs available when I came out out of school and. One was working for Dialex, which went bankrupt during the interview process. Ha. And and so my my backup job was I'd ripped a ripped a sheet off of the bulletin board at school, and it was to work on a fishing boat in Alaska. And it, you know you find out after the fact the mortality rate is actually relatively high, so commercial real estate looked like a good choice. So. Wow, safe. Exactly. <laughs> safe. <laughs> you didn't make a lot of money back then, but you you weren't you, you weren't falling overboard, right? So. So then, where'd you go from there? So market got better. Yeah, Eventually. so, so slowly, yeah, slowly over time and went worked through, you know, lots of individual receivership assets. And and really I think it's one of the it's probably not a bad place to start an industry when things are so bad and everybody is running for the door, just to kind of give you a bit of a grounding of this is how bad it can get. And again, I, I compare it to, you know, not necessarily just the last couple of years, but the last 10 years of very, very, very strong, you know, real estate markets across the country pretty much and across Virtually yeah, every globally, asset class. Yeah. So did I worked at Jones Lang for almost five years. 
and we did, uh, again, mostly valuation advisory work, a uh, little bit of brokerage work, and then left there and made the jump over to investment banking. So worked at Scotia Capital, who was building a bigger group, much like a lot of the uh, investment banks back then. You know, RBC had a very, very big uh, presence back then, probably the largest in Canada. CIBC, ourselves, and TD were all building big practices. So I was kind of seventh man in, and really, it was really kind of at the front end of the takeoff of of the Canadian REIT industry. Although early, so I started there in 98, which was really early days in the Canadian REIT standpoint. And I remember, but it was also kind of the start of phase one of the tech boom. And so I remember I had buddies working in uh, in the tech industry and you know, we're out trying to sell RioCan at an 11% yield. And everyone's like, well, why would I do that? I just bought JDS Uniphase and I made 11% last month, right? Or, you know, I bought BCE and I made 15%. And so you couldn't, you know, we, we were doing roadshows for follow-on issues for really, really good companies, albeit them a lot smaller back then than they are today, obviously. But, you know, Crete and RioCan and H&R, it just couldn't get any interest, right? You'd be doing, you know, uh, roadshows with the CEOs, across the country. And it was hard to get, you know, again, when you're, you're saying you can make in a year, but if you invest in this industry over here, you can do it in a month. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but, so I, I worked at Scotia from 98 till 2003 and there's, you know, so you had a bit of a lull in the real estate side, especially from a public company standpoint around 2000, 2001. And we at Scotia then ourselves, along with one other bank, TD started on the CMBS market. So it was early days of the Canadian CMBS. So I work with uh, a guy there, uh, Greg Lawrence, who's still at Scotia on the debt desk. And we started the, uh, again, I was a younger guy, so doing kind of the junior stuff, but worked on uh, some of the first Canadian CMBS issuance. What, uh, what year is this? Probably 2000, and 2000 2001, 2002. Okay. So it was back, there was, uh, I'm trying to remember some of them. So we did Sun Life's first and only CMBS deal. Quesa de Po was doing a lot of single single asset CMBS deals. We were, I know the, the guys in the sales desk were doing work for a number of the GE deals. So This is perfect. So CMBS stands for Canada Mortgage-Backed Securities. And if you'd like to know more about that. Commercial Mortgage-Backed Securities. So what did I say? Canada-Backed. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes. CMBS stands for Commercial Mortgage-Backed Securities. And if you'd like to know more in the show notes of this, of this podcast, you can click on the link and go listen to the CMBS podcast with Dave Morrison. Which is really good, which I listened to. Which is very so. good, yeah. And he would hate to know that we're promoting his show because he'd hate <laughs> the attention. But go listen. To, and Dave Morrison's the greatest. So I think the first issuance at all in Canada was around 1997 or 1998, right? I mean, so this would have been very small in 2001. Yeah. I mean, how, how big were the pools then? You were generally doing... You know, I, we're struggling to kind of get 200 million in a pool. And, you know, when we, back then, you couldn't do uh, an issuance without U.S. rating agencies. You know, if we got CBRS in was good, but we had to have DBRS and, or uh, S&P and Fitch and Moody's. And I'm trying to, and I don't, I won't remember the right deal, but I think we were, we, we were, we had the first issuance to actually get Moody's rating on one of our deals. And, and again, from the CMBS standpoint, especially back in those early days, buyers, the institutional buyers really relied on who was rating those deals. And so they looked, you know, the, when they were looking at how the deals were tranched and the separation in terms of the AAA versus the AA and how, how each of those was rated, it was really down to, you know, because that was really done by the rating agencies for the most part and what they approved. And so getting the right, you know, the right names and the right groups on side was, you know, there was a lot of dog and pony 
on that side with the but it, but it helped create some legitimacy to the to the product oh, you bet and it was also to you know like they one of the things we struggled with early days was having the u.s rating agencies understand there was a difference between boring practices in canada versus boring practice in the u.s in terms of and it really sub, uh, well, recourse is the just, biggest one totally and and so you can go through and do all the historicals you know in terms of you know default rates in canada versus default rates in the u.s but until they go through and they're part of a number of deals it's you know, no one, no one at like a lot of the guys, the U S guys were like, nah, it's kind of the same. We're going to underwrite it the same way. So, you know, it was a bit of a struggle to kind of get those first deals through. But once, you know, I, I think probably by 2002, there was, we had a 2 billion, I'm going to, and I'm going to guess, but there was 2 billion of issuance in one year. So, and there was a lot of guys out, out on the street kind of, you know, funding and sourcing the deals all, albeit a lot different in terms of what the structure looks so like. Some, today. some liquidity, some legitimate liquidity to the yeah. market. So keep going. So then what? So uh, I left Scotia in 03 and actually uh, took a year and a half off with my wife. So we went traveling for a year and a half. So a bit of a bit of a brain break from working all the time. That's way more interesting than CMBS. <laughs> <laughs> so where'd you go? What'd you do? <laughs> so we, um, we actually crewed on a sailboat out of Panama and the intent was to go across the Pacific. We mutinied off the boat with a bunch of other people halfway across in Marquesas. And nothing like traveling for months on end with a, you know, drunken Scotsman and his uh, South African wife. So, but an adventure and probably, you know, at the end of the day, if it would have gone super rosy, it wouldn't be a good story. Yeah, but, of course. you know, when everything, everything goes badly, it's, you know, all kinds of great of stories. So, so yes, yeah, so we kind of got halfway and then, you know, island hopped and ended up in uh, New Zealand for a month or so, but we had stopped in Fiji and Cook Islands and Tahiti and then um, four months in, uh, Australia, Southeast Asia, Maldives, Africa for five months where we kind of camped and traveled across Africa and then did the Middle East. Wow. Um, sounds, so, sounds epic. Yeah. My, and then you had to come back to reality. Totally. And, and try and find a job yeah. and, you know. And had anything changed or how was, how was the job hunt? Uh, it wasn't bad. So one of the, the, one of the last deals I worked on when I was at Scotia was on the equity side. So uh, I worked with Stephen Sender and we took Allied Properties public. And so I did a lot of work with Mike Emery and the team uh, back at that time. And Allied was a much, much, much smaller company. I think we did a $50 million IPO, you know, and the the universe of assets that Mike was looking at back then really was Toronto-centric and was nowhere near as well adopted as, you know, that class I product is today. But that's really, and I, and I think that just the acceptance of that product is 100% because of Allied, right? Mm-hmm. They've built that market, you know, across the country. So I, that was the last deal I did. And so three months before I was coming back, I was, uh, I had emailed Mike and who I'd kept in touch with and said, you know, looks like I might be coming back. Any chance that, you know, you're, you know, you need a, someone to work on the acquisition side. Cause back then Mike was doing everything. He was running the company and really running the management platform and doing all the acquisitions and doing all the, the public markets work. So he said, yeah, he said, maybe I've got a couple of things on the go, you know, maybe, you know, come see me when you get back. So Timing worked out well. They had done a, an equity issue just before I, I got back in Canada. I called them up and we chatted for a couple of months. And three months after I got back, I was working uh, working at Allied. So, yeah. So it's so I did acquisitions for Allied for about three years, and then got a bit of I think investment banking ADD, and ended up going back over to the investment banking side, working at BMO, working primarily on the brokerage side, but doing a little bit of uh, equity capital markets work as well. So did that for three years. And then uh, at the beginning, 
of the last recession in 2008. We had just, I just finished closing a deal, selling a sale leaseback portfolio to a group called Skyline uh, Apartment Trust. And let's talk to the, we're starting to talk to the CEO who I'd actually grew up with and played hockey with when I was a kid. And as you, if you remember back, so 2008 was not a fun time to be working on the iBanking side. You should have got it back uh, on the boat at that point. I, it's yeah. probably, probably would have been a better option. But uh, so ended up making the change and left the BMO group at that time and joined Skyline and been there ever since. And that's the longest place you've ever worked. Yeah. It's, <laughs> we're, we're After listening up. to that, you're like three years here, three yep. years there. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Clearly it's worked <laughs> out for you. But geez, Louise, you've been all over the place. That's, a, that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a lot of stops. And I, I think at the five-year market Skyline, I was kind of... Turn around, thinking something wrong's here, right? I'm not getting the not getting the five year itch that I should be going <laughs> yeah, somewhere. Which so. probably means you're having fun, or or they're paying you too much. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's so sky because Skyline's based out of Guelph. So the the biggest challenge was actually moving out of Toronto. So I commuted for a little bit, you know, until you know, just to make sure, okay, I haven't made a big mistake. Was and, that from from downtown Toronto every day? Yeah, well, I I lived out in Roncesville, so okay. um, so I was making that, and it wasn't a bad commute, right? You're yeah. going against traffic, so it was an hour and a bit. But people not from a major urban center are laughing at the idea that an hour is not a bad commute. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> so yeah, so I did, you know, made the made the move into Guelph, and the nice thing is, is, is uh, as skylines continue to grow, you know, I'm downtown all the time, so I get my Toronto fix, you know, once a week, and. I've got two little kids now or not that little anymore. And, you know, so you, you know, come in for a day or two and you're like, okay, it's time to go back. So mm-hmm. we're recording this today on the, uh, the opening night of the real estate forum. So that's what uh, we thought we'd get the recording in real quick with Mike before uh, we all head off to that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a much, a much more coherent discussion beforehand rather than afterwards. So, so operating out of, um, I mean, there's a few real estate organizations that operate out of, you know, much smaller markets, but do, you know, cross country. So you don't find any sort of, you know, hindrance being, you know, out of, out of, you know, a Bay Street and the, the, you know, the environment you're used to previously? You know what? It's um, originally Skyline's platform. So when I joined, Skyline had one trust. So it was uh, an apartment trust. And back then, 100, 100% of the apartment assets were all in Ontario. And it's really over time that we've kind of grown that outside of being kind of a very provincial kind of management operation. But, you know, like the Guelph's relatively close to it from the airport, right? If you're if you live in, you know, on the Danforth, you know, my commute to the airport is probably the same as that as the Danforth is and probably less traffic. And I think, you know, just the, you know, the 15, 17 years that I worked downtown Toronto, you know, it's a relatively small industry as everybody knows. So, you know, the phone's an easy thing and because I'm down here once a week and, you know, it's, I think the only, the challenges is, and with the young guys that work with me, I think don't have the benefit of it. But, you know, when, when I was younger, you know, working at Jones Lang or working at Scotia, you know, if you were trying to figure something out or you had an issue or didn't know, you didn't have any experience with a certain location or asset class or something, you know, there's 15 guys that you can call up and say, okay, you know, I know you did this. I haven't done it before. Let me go buy you a beer and you can kind of, you know, get me up to speed and, you know, at least start, start the process. Mm-hmm. Whereas you, when you live outside of kind of downtown or you're not working downtown Toronto, it's harder, you know, you can have that phone conversation, but I always find those things are are much easier to kind of, you know, do over, you know, having a, a beer with a guy and just trying to pick guys' brains, right? And because at the end of the day, I think as as groups of people kind of mature and go through the industry, right, you, you're all kind of moving up through those ranks together. And I think for the most part, everyone's trying to help each other out, right? You had guys, you know, people switch from the brokerage side to the principal side, 
or back or from the service side over. So it's a fairly fluid market. So, and, and, I, and I think most of the guys that I've kind of grown through in my generation are, if they're familiar with something and, you know, it's not competitive to what they're doing, they're happy to help. So yeah, they've all had multiple lives, not dissimilar to yourself. Yeah. Right? I started my career at Collier's and I can't believe the number of people that started there and then ended up in, is still in real estate, but not doing brokerage. You know, it's uh, this web of people that have kind of scattered all over the industry, different facets of it. It's, uh, you know, been definitely helpful. Yeah, no, for sure. Right. So what's the, uh, what's the Skyline story then? We could definitely just establish your story. What's uh, what do you think the Skyline story would be? So Skyline started, I'm going to say back in, I think, and I should have the dates right, but I think 92. So there was um, two brothers, Jason and Martin Castellan who, uh, and I'll make a long story short on that, basically were living with their dad in his basement and were having too much fun, too many people over. And the dad said, all right, get out. Here's five grand, go buy a house. Don't live with me anymore. And uh, so they went and bought a house and brought in some roommates. You know, end of the year, they thought, well, that's not bad. So we basically just lived for free. Our two buddies basically paid, uh, paid the mortgage. And back then you could buy a, you know, a student, a crappy student rental house for a hundred grand. And so five grand down, get you the house with the, you know, first time home buyer. And so they then, you know, they split up. And then so one brother lived in one house and they bought another house. And then it kind of rolled out and they brought in some other friends. And it, I think four or five years later, they had 35 houses, but still, you know, now graduated working non real estate jobs. And then, but we're looking and saying, and they brought in a friend of theirs, Jason Ashdown, but they were cutting 35 lawns and looking after, you know, 35 roofs and collecting rent from, a hundred and something different tenants, all of whom are students, which is, you know, if anybody who's been a landlord of students is not a fun experience. And there's lots of, you know, interesting stories that the guys tell about, you know, collecting rent and the things you have to do to collect rent from tenants and stuff, especially when they're, you know, broke uh, university students. So they made a decision to sell all the student housing. So they sold all that and started to, they took those proceeds and then bought kind of the smaller apartments. So lots of 10 plexes and 15 plexes Again, all kind of locally based, kind of Guelph, Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo. And then over the next three, four years, so kind of late 90s, early 2000s, got to the same point again where, okay, we have 35 or 40 of these, you know, walk-up apartment buildings, but we're still cutting the same amount because they're doing everything themselves, right? They're fixing all the toilets and, you know, dealing with, Mm. you know, drywall repairs and stuff. And I think they brought on one employee at that point who's still with the company. Plus full-time jobs, not in real estate. Yeah. That and sounds so, awful. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the guys was a teacher, you know, so I think at that point they'd, uh, they decided, okay, we need to do this full-time. And, and I think the business, you know, as real estate, you know, values that kind of uh, were creeping up, you know, allowed them to A, do it full-time, but, you know, their lawyer and their accountant were all saying, well, maybe I'll give you guys some money. And so they, they again, sold a lot of the assets, started to redeploy but we're doing a lot of the acquisitions uh, kind of in an old school syndication model. So we'd find an, you know, a three, four, $5 million asset, tie it up, go and syndicate the equity from family, friends, kind of local guys. And then by 2006, had 25 or 30 assets all set up on the syndication model and said, okay, we've got to, you know, we've done this three times. We've got to fix how we do this because the problem with that many assets and that syndication model is you can have one building that needs a brand new roof because it's leaking like crazy, but it may not be cash flowing very well and have a whole bunch of other assets that are cash flowing and don't need money, but you can't, you know, it's different pools of capital. So you can't take different the equity cash, partners. Yeah. You can't take the cash over here. And if your investors on the one asset that needs a lot of love, 
don't want to participate. Or don't have the equity to help with right. the CapEx or whatever so, it is. Or yeah. just don't believe it's like, oh, you can patch it, right? Uh, mm. Throw another bag of, of cement on the roof. It'll be okay. And your uh, lenders probably look at that as well with cash flowing versus non-cash flowing assets. It's, yeah. You bet, right? Yeah. So so at that point, they really took all the syndications. They valued each one of the each one of the assets and rolled it into a REIT model. And so at that time, not sure there were any, but very, very few private REITs in Canada. In the US, there's a a number of private REITs that that started back in the 70s and 80s and has been a longer history there than there has been in Canada. But they rolled that into a, a private REIT model, issued units at $10, as you always do in an initial offering. And then all the investors in those various syndications got kind of equivalent value to what their current, their then current asset or equity value was in whatever assets they had. Just to, to tie it in together, and I, I don't know if this is true or not. You can you can tell me if it is, or maybe you don't know. But Barry Gidney, who's an employee here at First National Originator, he will claim that he gave the Castle and Brothers their first loan, and they owe all of their success to him because no one else would lend to them. I'm sure that's not true, but that's what he's that's what he'll claim. I, but I, nevertheless, I mean, the point of that is that First National was there and, and helping these guys very early on in their their career process. So there's a there is a strong history between the two firms. Yeah, no abs- and I I think at least I think at least part of that's right. Yeah. There's uh, some so- form of truth in there, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, Barry I think went and met with the guys early on and I think yeah, they the very first kind of CMHC deal I think was done through Barry and First so National. So that sounds so. about right. Yeah. And and we've done a, a ton of business with First National ever since across all our all our funds. So So keep going. Sorry to interrupt. No, 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 yeah, keep no, going. So Rolled everything in over into that REIT model in 2006. And I'm, I'm going to guess total assets under management at that point were about 75 or $80 million in terms of asset value. I joined beginning of 2009. And at that point, there were about 350 or 400 million in assets. Part of that was the cooperators sale leaseback portfolio that I sold them when I was at BMO, but they had also just closed on uh, Conundrum's initial apartment portfolio. So that was a about a $120 million, which was a massive transaction for Skyline. And for back, you know, and back in 08 was was a big apartment transaction, especially when there was really no GTA assets in that portfolio. Hmm. Yeah, the per unit value then obviously would be a fraction of what it is uh, today. Yeah, I'm going to say 70 I was just thinking 70 like bucks that. a door, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot different than what we're looking at these days. So, so yeah, so I joined then and we, uh, again, was, we just had the apartment trust and we uh, spent the next, you know, really that, then that REIT now is 2.1 billion in total assets under management. We're about just a little shy of 17,000 apartment units across the country built that, that portfolio is now we're coast to coast. So we've got assets in Dartmouth, Moncton. We've uh, recently started buying out in BC out in the Okanagan, and we've got 12, 1,300 units in Alberta and, and probably 1,500 units in Quebec. But the bulk of the portfolio, probably 65, 70% still Ontario-based. So. But not a lot of GTA. No, no, we've, you know, we've at different points in our life cycle, we've, we've owned GTA assets, not necessarily 416, but we had a, at one point had a portfolio, small portfolio out in Oshawa, which we sold really and really sold just because we couldn't compete anymore. So pricing is starting to to stretch out even out in Oshawa five years ago, which was, you know, was a was not necessarily considered a, a primary GTA area to look at. So we sold that portfolio to a couple of different groups, took that money, redeployed that capital back into more of our core markets. And then we'd also acquired an, uh, a single asset in Mississauga, but same thing, kind of thought we were, you know, hoping to build that into a bigger footprint in Mississauga and 
couldn't buy that next asset that made sense from our economics. So three years later, then, you know, added some value, I think, and then turned around and made some money on that. And again, redeployed that back into core markets. So maybe just talk about the core strategy, right? You are smaller market centric and maybe just talk about why and, you know, how that's evolved. Sure. So it's because the company is based out of Guelph, the concept always was, at least in the initial timeframe, was really investing in your backyard, right? It's the area you're closest to. And because we, across all three trusts, we manage, self-manage all of our assets, which is really important to us to, you know, be vested in the operation and management and and adding value to those assets that rather than third party it. And so it's really been, you know, buying in, in and around our community kind of was, A, it was the easiest when the guys first started. And then as time evolved, it was the returns that we could get buying in places like Kingston and London and Windsor, Belleville, St. Catharines, Hamilton. You know, we were 150 to 250 basis points better than what we could achieve if we tried to buy GTA. And so because we were, you know, we're a REITs or a yield-based entity that pays a, a monthly distribution to our investors, you know, it was, it was important to us to try and maximize the return we could get for our, our investors. And the end of the day on the apartment side, the credit quality of your tenant is the same everywhere. So you know, we looked at it as this is really a liquidity question. And because we're generally not asset traders, you know, if we were buying good assets in stable markets. And our, our CEO, Jason Castle has said this at a couple of conferences, but you know, early days, the focus was, does it have a junior A hockey team? Is there a, is there a hospital there? And is there you know, some viable industry? So it doesn't have to be a you know, 2 million population city. You know, if it's got those three key factors, and it's funny because it's the, the one people laugh at is, do they have a junior A hockey team? But it was really, is there, you know, is there demand drivers and needs for the people to keep being in those communities, right? A sustainable so, economy. Yeah. It doesn't, not everything has to be, you know, a population of 5 million people. So it's probably worth pointing out as well that through the, the magic of CMHC insured finance, you can borrow money to buy these assets, the same low interest rate that you would if you're buying a downtown Toronto asset. But as you said, you're getting, you know, up to 200 beep spread difference. So your IRR is going to be radically different than you find in a, yeah. a GTA asset. But you, you've, I mean, of course, just based on the history, you've gotten comfortable with that marketplace and that yep. those, the economies that exist in those small markets versus a REIT that started in GTA and then you're branching out. You've always got to explain to people, wait a minute, why are you going to Brantford? Like, what are you thinking? Well, no, no, that's, that is the core of your business. So you, there was no need to explain why you were buying in these smaller markets. So then that's Ontario and, and apartments. Then it started, it slowly transitioned, I guess, presumably since you've joined to start a couple different trusts, different asset classes, and you've expanded across the country. So let's talk through how that evolved and what that looks like now. Sure. And, and, how, and how you pick small markets in uh, other provinces. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good point. And just, just for further clarification, I mean, the apartments is, makes most sense, right? Because, you know, apartments in Brantford versus apartments in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of difference because of the economies, but people need a place to live and, and you can kind of rationalize the sustainability and the durability mm-hmm. of the cash flows out of those assets. When you start talking about industrial or retail, there's more variability, right, to the strength of that cash flow? Yeah, for sure. And and the uh, the the commercial, our commercial reader, our industrial REIT, is a little different because it's not not the same geographic focus as, say, the retail of the apartment. You know, the when we started that fund back in, or that trust back in 2011, you know, the decision, we initially acquired a portfolio again from Conundrum, and their their portfolio that we acquired was it's about a 240 million dollar transaction 
but it was uh, 100% Toronto and Ottawa, mostly small bay multi industrial product, some larger bay stuff, but that was really the kickstart to the portfolio. And the focus, the decision was made that it didn't make sense to be buying industrial assets in Sudbury or Timmins or places like that for all the reasons you said, which, you know, I think it's a little different on the, you know, multifamily side versus or retail, but in the industrial, it's like companies have to need to be there. You know, there has to be, you know, a need or the demand for warehousing and manufacturing and and access to a population base. So, so our, our industrial trust, which is soon to be, we're just working on a, a transaction now that we should be closing kind of mid-December, but we'll be about uh, 900 million in assets, but we'd be probably 40%, 50% GTA, uh, about 20, 25% Ottawa, 20% Montreal, and then the balance would be 401 corridor. So Brantford, Guelph, Kitchener, Cambridge, Mississauga, and then, sorry, and then we have a, a portfolio that we did a sale lease back with uh, the service group, which is uh, all Sa- uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta based. So a different, different geographic focus for all the reasons you talked about on the industrial side. So. Because even even the smallest town you mentioned there is not that small. Like those are all major centers. Yeah, it's it's yeah. and that's why it's you know it was it was at that point it was really it was a definite change of view, but it was really based on the asset class. And you know when you're targeting, you know you have to at least that you know if you you can buy a perfect building in a small market, and these buildings get built in in small communities because companies go in and access the labor pool there and can get land for free, and they get all kinds of you know, subsidies or discounts or tax rebates from local municipalities or the province. But at the end of that term, if that tenant doesn't stay in, you know, a town of 30,000 people, you are unlikely to rent it to anybody. Or you're waiting a year until you find somebody yeah. easily. It, We're going backwards a little bit with this question, but what was the what was the motivation to branch out in the first place? I mean, clearly you'd done very well. The company at large had done very well with, with the focus on apartment buildings. Why decide to, to branch out to different asset classes? It was really through a request of our investors. So we had, you know, a lot of our investors, and back then we probably had 1,500 or 1,800 individual investors in the apartment trust. And, you know, they were, I think, getting to the comfort level of in terms of the amount of capital they had invested in that trust and said, guys, you you know, you've made me a lot of money. You know, we trust you guys, but I've got a lot of money in this one vehicle. And, you know, my comfort level or my exposure, you know, whether it's to Skyline, like the, that apartment industry within those communities, said, you know, I'm kind of maxed out, but I want you guys to go do something else. And so, you know, we had discussions with a lot of our our larger private guys, and then the opportunity came to acquire the the conundrum portfolio. So it was kind of, you know, we t- obviously had some early discussions with some of our key investors and said, you know, this is what we're thinking. You know, the senior executives all sat around the table. And so we, you know, we made a bet and decided that, you know, we'll go into this asset class and you know, and it was really, again, it's really, it was really driven out of, you know, demand or suggestions by our investors to kind of branch out and, and use some of the skill sets that we had on, on our exec team to kind of go out and, and look at other asset classes. So, and then, so the retail, I guess, is, is that also major markets or is that one a little bit more of the, the small market mentality of the small market, you know, what's what I'm looking for, the small market focus? Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's, it mirrors the apartment read in terms of geographic focus. So, you know, we started that, I'm going to say, five-ish years ago. Started out with a couple of just kind of really, and the focus is, has been service-oriented. So it's it's not to piggyback or copy, but it's really been kind of the first cap model from when it started out, you know, so it's always grocery-anchored, pharmacy-anchored, primarily service tenants. So 
you know, medical tenants, restaurants, dry cleaner, you know, so that it's that, and I, I'm going to remember back to listening to when, uh, Dory Siegel early days, you know, was kind of talking to the institutional guys about this is, this is what I want to build. And this is, this is a plan. And, you know, our models really kind of mirrored that. And I think it's, you know, the retail has a lot of headwinds in terms of what they, I think what the perception is right now. And, and there's, I think there's very different formats of, and, you know, with different risk profiles, but, you know, online shopping obviously is having a big impact and will continue to increase what that impact is. But, you know, our view uh, and our, our trustees view on this is especially in smaller communities, you know, your people still want to go pick up their groceries. It's, I think it's a little different when you're downtown in a very urban area and there's a sea of condos and not many grocery stores and you can kind of, you know, go online at work and sit there and figure out what am I going to have for dinner? You're going to have it ordered and, you know, it's sitting at concierge, you know, by the time you get home, when you live in a town of 15,000 people, it's just not the case. And I think, you know, our belief is too, is that there's still a social aspect to, you know, going out and shopping. And I think, you know, whether it's picking up your groceries, you know, on the weekend, going out to dinner, there's a component here that, you know, it'll change and it'll morph from where, what things are today and what the grocery store looks like today versus what it'll look like in 20 years. But, you know, when I look at Sobey's investment in Farm Boy, there's still that point of sale that I think is needed. So we've really kind of focused our, our acquisition profile on those service-oriented retail opportunities. And out of, out of the three asset classes, which one's performed the best for you in the last couple of years? You know, I, th- I think probably over the long term, uh, the apartment, just kind of given the, the overall cap rate compression that we've seen, you know, because we've seen, definitely seen a, a push down on a cap rate basis and unit value basis even in, you know, the, the, you know, some of the smaller markets we're in, you know, that impacts there as the GTA and kind of major market effect trickles out and, you know, larger investors move a little further afield just because they have to, if they actually want to buy something, because a lot of the product is being so heavily bid. I think as Mike Batzlal kind of talked about in a previous podcast, but I think in the near term, I would say if we looked at the last 24 months, probably the industrial rate, and that's a, we're, 40, 50% focused on the GTA and another 2025 in Montreal. And given the significant rental growth rate in both those markets in the last 24 months, I think that's, that's where we've seen the greatest change kind of in our portfolio. So well, it's funny you mentioned the two. I mean, if you're talking about industrial there, yeah, the dams burst on rental rates, which has really driven growth. And there's been some cap recompression, whereas the apartment's basically been, uh, I mean, probably small markets especially, you wouldn't see big year-over-year rental increases, but the cap recompression would have been significant. I mean, I got to think if we go back far enough in your purchasing history, you're probably purchasing apartments in, you know, the eight, nine cap range, maybe in the smallest markets you're in. Yeah, definitely. I, I, don't, I don't remember buying anything in the nines, but, okay. but definitely kind of early days, we would have been in the mid sevens and every once in a while, yeah you know, uncover something that's kind of a little better than that. Um, and that's, that's at, at acquisition, not necessarily at stabilized, right? right? And, and generally, you know, we're, I, I think for the first, at least five, six, seven years while I've been at Skyline, a lot of the acquisitions we were making really were value add, you know, be it on a small degree or a larger degree and trying to drive rents. But, you know, generally that was, you know, I think we can clean the building up, put, you know, new common areas in, fix some of the bigger capital items and maybe drive rents a hundred bucks or 150 bucks, which, you know, when you're buying a building that's got, you know, a 750 or an $800 a month rent, you can move the needle a hundred bucks. It's a big deal. And it changes your, your, your value 
dramatically. And I'm um, assuming you're buying from typically private owners that might own one or two apartment buildings that aren't the most sophisticated of property managers. You're not buying from Starlight, who's already squeezed every last cent out of that out of that rent, right? No, for sure. Although we've bought assets from we have sure. bought assets from Starlight, but yeah, and a lot of the private guys, it's I think it's more a lot of guys that if, if a contractor has owned a building or an individual has owned one or two buildings for 20, 30, 40 years. I think the the concept of how you run that building, you know, they fix stuff. And a lot of the guys are very good. good oh, sure. But, you know, the the concept of trying to move tenants out and do a massive sweet turn, you know, and spend 15, 20, $25,000 per unit and try and get $400 rent increase was never there. And that's that's really a phenomenon that's really only happened, at least in the secondary markets, maybe four or five years ago. And I think that's where a bit of a misconception where we're seeing, and it's not everywhere. You have to, you have to definitely pick your spots, but there, there is demand in a lot of these communities where there's people with significant wealth are ready to move out of their house, but don't want to move into, you know, a B minus C plus apartment building that doesn't have any services or amenities or laundry. And so in a lot of these areas, we're now partnering with developers be it local developers or guy, regional guys and doing new builds. So we're not developers. So we're not, you know, we're not greenfield developing on our own, but partnering with these guys in markets where we've got confidence we can go in and, you know, get 14, 15, 16, 1700 bucks a month. For, for a new product. Yep. Is that is that on existing sites that you already own or you're finding the sites to do that on? It's a bit of both. Some of it's infill, you know, where we've got the excess land. But again, it's not universal. We've got a number of properties. Where we've got density, but they're just not markets that can justify you know, trying to get that kind of rent. So I'm curious how you're finding the absorption of those units. And, and you know, the biggest challenge we've had from a financing perspective with those assets is getting our heads wrapped around the fact that there are rents out there that can at times on paper be double what the average CMHC market rent would be for that jurisdiction, right? Pick a small town of 15 to 20,000 people and the average rent might be 750 for a one bedroom. And then you're saying, yeah, what if I build it new? It's 1500. And, and you know, people go, well, you know, that's impossible. But the reality is you've got 40 or 50 year old rental stock and that's what people are paying $750 for. When you build a brand new building with the nice amenities and the new finishes, you really can get $1,500. Are you having a hard time convincing people that the rents are there? Or have you just kind of proven it a couple of times where now people are, are believing? Yeah, I think it's, again, a lot of these are very market driven, right? So, you know, it often takes education on the lender standpoint. But I think at the end of the day, the the individual who's renting a 30 or 40 year old apartment unit in, you know, whether it's Toronto or, you know, a city like Brantford, they're not probably the person that's going to pay $1,500 a month in rent. And so what we're finding, we, we just finished a, or acquired a, a development out in Brantford that has over 200 units in it. We leased, we leased that up inside six months with average rents in $1,400, $1,600. And a lot of that tenant base is, you know, 55 plus coming out of, you know, houses they own or higher end, but not new product. And just, looking for something much better and more than happy to pay three, four, 500 bucks more than the existing stuff that's there simply because what, what they want doesn't exist. And a, a good example is we bought a building, uh, apartment building up in Midland, Ontario. And Midland's not a big community, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's on Georgian Bay. I don't think they have a hockey team. They don't. Um, <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes there's exceptions. <laughs> to the rule. Um, so we bought, actually bought this building from Romsman and Romsman had taken the it was a loan that had gone bad, was initially started as a condo, 
Connor developer didn't, didn't work out very well. Romspin, through their construction team, took control of the project, finished it, built it, leased it. And our average rent in that building is almost $2,000 a month. And wow. the average age in that building, now it's only, I'm going to say 55 units. Um, Still. But the average age in that building is probably 72. There's more walkers in the hallways than there are mountain bikes. Even though you're saying 55 units is small, my first thought would be Midland, Ontario. How deep is the market for $2,000 a month rent? You know, that might be the market. Yeah, totally, right? I, I wouldn't want to try and rent 200 units there. Yeah. Um, or you wouldn't be building another one. No, but, you know, maybe there, you know, it, again, like I think there's good demand. There's, you know, the tenants don't move out. And Midland's also one of those markets. A, it's waterfront. It's still reasonably close to Toronto. There's a, you know, yacht club there. And I think there's lots of communities like that. And I think that's, you know, the waterfront focus too. Like I grew up in a small town and I, you know, like there's a lot, my parents are now retired and there's, you know, there's always talk about, oh, we'll sell this and we'll move to, you know, Lake Huron somewhere. Right. I think at the end of the day, everybody wants to, you know, at some point live on the water for whatever reason. So, you know, when you live in Ontario, that's, it's a lake, it's not the ocean. Right. So. You mentioned Midland. What is the the smallest town that you're in or the population? How small do you go on the apartment side? What's, uh, what's your threshold for uh, a <laughs> tiny, tiny So we, market? so the founders are all, the four, four founding partners are all pretty much small town guys. As I said, two of the guys I played hockey with when I was growing up and we grew up in Walkerton, Ontario, which is very small, but we've got, I think the smallest town's probably 4,500. Now we only have a couple of, and again, that's a lot of, that's a more heritage asset where, you know, it was bought about 12, 13, 14 years ago. It's probably not a market we would buy today, but it's a very stable community. I don't think it hardly ever has a vacancy. I think we bought it for $25,000 a door. It's probably worth $80,000 a door right now. It's a great return. So, yeah. Again, wouldn't buy it. I don't think I'd buy it again today, but yeah, when, you're, when your levered return is, you know, well through the double digits on that, it's hard to argue with. So. So then when you're exploring uh, or making forays into other provinces, which you've been doing for the last couple of years anyway, you know, there, what are you looking for in the markets with size? Are you sticking to the small market ethos in those other provinces as well? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a bit of West versus East. So, you know, we, we've acquired a number of assets out in BC, but given where pricing is not only in Vancouver, but Victoria and outside of Victoria, it's tough to make sense again for a vehicle like us that pays a monthly return but we've had a lot of success buying out in the Okanagan. So places like Kelowna, West Kelowna, Vernon are, is a really nice node that we like. They're smaller, smaller cities, but really good population growth as Vancouver and Victoria get more and more expensive. So you're seeing kind of that similar to what's happening in Toronto, where there's a lot of people are kind of leaving the city that don't need to be there anymore, selling their houses for tens of multiples, what they paid for it 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, going to a community like Kelowna, which is, you know, resort town. But still want to be able to drive to see their grandkids. Exactly, right? It's very accessible and, you know, ski hills are close by. Like I think Kicking Horse is 40 minutes away, which is a fantastic ski hill, 200 wineries in the in the uh, Okanagan region. So, you know, so in BC, looking at ass- assets there, Alberta, we own a number of assets in um, suburban Edmonton that we bought over the last four or five years. Are you still shopping uh, now? Um, yeah. 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 There's definitely, you know, we're, we've looked at a number of opportunities, haven't bought anything for a couple of years. We're should be closing on an asset there before a uh, year end, but really looking at kind of, you know, given, given we own a number of assets, there, looking at specific areas within the city and looking at kind of next generation product out in at Edmonton, where it's evolved kind of from the first generation, which was, you know, kind of 
two bedroom, but only one bath and nice finishes, you know, kind of condo minus, but you know, increased competition and a better quality. I think just more thought going into the apartments that are built. So now, you know, bedroom, bathroom matching. So two bed, two bath, granite countertops, nicer finishes, better clear heights. So looking at those opportunities and then uh, out in the East Coast last year, we acquired a small portfolio out in Moncton, half of which was newer, half a little older. And then subsequent to that, we've bought three different transactions, a couple in Moncton, one in Dartmouth, and looking at a couple other uh, other opportunities down in Nova Scotia. So you're busy. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of miles to cover <laughs> from Guelph. I was going to so. say. And given that you're on the acquisition side, you mentioned, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of you know small privates in order to do some of these deals. How is that trying to keep contacts in any number of small locations with local players? How do you connect? How do you, how do you source these opportunities? A lot of it's through, um, you know, once it, new markets are always hard, you know, the, cause often on, on the apartment side in smaller communities, apartments are sold by local guys, you know, it might be the Remax agent that, you know, knows the contractor or is related to somebody. So your first asset or first acquisition in an area is always a little more challenging to find. Once you do a deal, just like anything else, they're kind of worth, especially when you get to a smaller city, worth of, word of mouth hits that, you know, a larger group has just come in and acquired and all of a sudden you become very popular. But I, there's a, a group of us at Skyline. So I have an acquisition team of, of five and we break it up by asset classes. And so we've got, you know, people looking across the country at different markets on the retail side, on the apartment side and on, uh, on the industrial side as well. So lots of people getting on planes and, you know, making, you know, trying to, trying to get to know as many people as we can, especially if we're trying to focus on, on a new geography where people maybe haven't, haven't heard of us. You got to have people on the ground. You can't do that from phone calls and emails. right? Especially when you're, when you're dealing with local private guys, Sure, you have to, you know, you have to build that trust with guys. And, you know, I think a lot of these, a lot of the local private guys, it's maybe their first time selling an asset. It may be their only asset. So, the process isn't something they're super familiar with. And sure. it takes a, you know, it takes a lot of handholding, not only from, you know, our legal counsels, we have six lawyers internally, you know, and we, we've got 400 properties. So it's a lot of refis every year and sure. you know, it's a lot of legal work, but you know, you're often dealing with the local lawyer as well, who, you know, may not do a lot of larger transactions. So, but you know, often, you know, I would say 20% of our deals that we get every year are a referral from, someone who we may have bought one an asset from before or from a vendor who had three assets and he wanted to sell one and now he's got an older, you know, or decided, yeah, it's time to sell and I like the process and they'll give us a call. And at the end of the day, you're, you know, you're trying to do the best that you can for your investors. But, you know, it's because our business is so much relationship driven and, you know, trying to build that trust with the vendor. We have a number of investors in our funds who we actually bought assets from, you know, they took their cash six months later, called up, you know, our investor relations group and said, yeah, actually, I really liked what you guys did. You know, the process was, you know, was fair and all that stuff, but how about I give you some money and you guys go and buy, uh, you know, apartments or industrial or retail with it. So it goes around, comes around. Yeah. So what does 2019 and beyond look like then? What, what's the next, what's the next trust or what's the next, the next project? So we, you know, the 2018 for us has actually been a fairly busy and active year you know, on between the three trusts in terms of for total transaction volume, we did a little over a billion dollars, about 300 million of that was dispositions in a couple of transactions, a little over 700 million in acquisitions. But we also launched a clean energy fund. 
So it's basically a new fund. Uh, it's about 20, I want to say $25 million in assets, but it's, it's uh, we acquire or develop solar systems through the FIT programs that have been out there for a number of years. And it's, uh, that, it's run by a guy, uh, Rob Stein, who's got a ton of experience on the construction side. He's been building systems for a number of groups for about the last seven, eight years. So we hired him on to go out and, and acquire some of these systems for our investors. And it's really a, it's a, a capital appreciation vehicle as opposed to a distribution vehicle like our REITs are. So it's taking that monthly cash flow, pulling it up, and then going out, redeploying and buying more assets. And by assets, you mean? Solar systems. Right. So right now it's really, but we are, the guys are, are looking at other green energy initiatives, be it wind or other types of power generation. So. That's interesting. So that's branching off. How is that connected to real estate? It's put, not. Put it on the roof of your industrial Well, that's what I was going to say. Well, that's where I was going to go yeah, with it too. It, yeah. There was a bit of a, it was a bit of a morph. So one of the early fit contracts on the apartment side, we actually, uh, Jason Ashdown at our company kind of takes the lead in a lot of the kind of energy saving and green initiatives. And so we ended up applying, I think for 70 fit, I think they were fit one contracts. Like I'm not hundred percent sure which fit one, fit two. And then we put, so we built and installed those on our apartment buildings. And it was really just, again, trying to enhance revenue. And back then, based on the cost of production or cost to put a, a system on your building, it was like a 10, 10 and a half, 11% on levered return. But, you know, like a, on a cash on cash basis, you know, nice added, added revenue for any building. So we put a bunch on kind of made some mistakes and figured out what worked and what didn't work. And there's some know. durability issues to those things. Yeah, too, what's, right? You also have to, you have to pay attention, right? If you just put them on and forget about it, you know, and then it's supposed to produce $10,000 a year in, in revenue. And you look at it and say, well, why did my system only produce four, but no one's paying attention. You know, you, you actually, you know, what you, what we learned is you got to have a monitoring system in place and you have to have someone checking these things daily because there's, you know, there's inverters and I'm not a the technical eye on these, but there can be things that don't work because, you know, something breaks or something snaps. And if you don't pay attention for six months and your system's not generating, only generating half the power because someone didn't check to make sure it's working properly, it's money out the door because your contract's only, it's only 20 years. So, so we, again, we've made, made mistakes and learned from it. And that's where, you know, really kind of where the generation of the clean energy fund came out of is that we've kind of sorted out the, the warts and the pitfalls and stuff know what to look for, hired some smart guys that really live and breathe that industry. It's not, you know, we haven't embedded a, you know, an apartment guy to go and run a solar company. And so it's kind of building off of that track record and that experience. So, so the question we're asking for 2018 to end off every, every uh, show is if you're to invest in one asset class in what city, what would it be and why? And this is going to be our last guest of the year to answer the question. And it's going to be particularly interesting because Mike is in so many different, so many different cities. It should be, you know, pretty uh, insightful. So, what what would you invest in? What asset class? What city? I would say, you know, based on acquisition, like the 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 price to get in on on, you know, some of the assets that we're looking at. But where I see the most growth or the most longevity is probably smaller, actually, you know, secondary, tertiary market, residential, but waterfront. Again, I have a I have a strong bias, and we're seeing it in our portfolio of you know that migration out of big urban centers to you know whether it's cottage country or you know does it, you know could be somewhere on Lake Erie or on the St. Lawrence, but you know waterfront, mid-sized city, multi-res, you know higher end, you know kind of condo quality. Anything you just you can charge a premium in the rent just because it's on the water 
Yep. Even if it was rather than being two blocks away. hundred yeah. percent. Right. As long as it's got a view, doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be the waves lapping up on the front step. But I think if, if you can, if you have that view of the, of the water, you know, you're the, the type of tenant you're really going to attract, you know, kind of that empty nesters senior that, you know, it's probably either working part-time because, you know, they want to, it's not because they have to and are spending two, three, four months, you know, in the wintertime down South somewhere. And it's not, they're not worried about, am I paying 1100 bucks or 1150? They're like, I want a really nice place. I don't want to have the worry of ownership. So if I want to move to, if I want to move across the country, cause my kids all of a sudden moved to Vancouver, give my notice on my, on my lease and I'm gone. So I think, and I think with, again, with a, the cost of living in a lot of major centers, but especially places like Toronto and as the, you know, empty nesters sit there and say, well, I bought my bungalow in Etobicoke for $200,000 back in 1995 and it's now worth two and a half million. I don't need to be here anymore. You know, they don't want to go too far. So I think, I think a lot of these places that are, you know, an hour to two hours outside of the GTA are, are going to see relatively big migration into some of these places. And, but it's really going to be based on, is there, is there product available that people want to move to? So. And then Collingwood's experiencing it right now. 100%. We're, yeah. you know, we're Along with lots of others. Yeah. 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 Mike, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been uh, super insightful. You know, it's, uh, we don't get a lot of people that, you know, have that much knowledge about small market specific assets. So it's super interesting. I want to thank our listeners for listening. I want to thank our sponsor, First National, as always. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with somebody that uh, would care about this topic. Thanks again, Mike. No worries. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.